Thank you very much for joining us, everyone. Today we're joined by an illustrious group of uh, ASX uh, Uranium Juniors. Um, we've we've got uh, Brandon Munro, um, we've got uh, Keith Bose, and we've also got uh, John Borshoff joining us. We're going to hopefully calm everyone down about what's happening in the marketplace, maybe remind you of some of the fundamentals of this story and some of the evolving stories uh, as well, and, and indeed, obviously, find out what these guys are up to. So. Um, but before we do that, before that useful conversation, um, I'm going to ask each of you just kind of run through, give us a highlight of um, who you are, your story, and then we'll pick it up some questions from there. So, Brandon, do you mind kicking us off? Thanks, Matt. I'm Brandon Munro. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of ASX-listed Bannerman Energy. We have the Atango 8 Uranium Project in Namibia. It's a very advanced project. We're just completing our DFS at the moment. And having been in country for about 15 years, done all of the feasibility work, all of the resource drilling, all of the metallurgy, and even run a demonstration plant for a few years. Thanks, Matt. Uh, my name's Keith Bose, and I'm the Managing Director for Lotus Resources. Lotus Resources is an ASX-listed company and acquired the Kalakira asset from Paladin Energy back in March of 2020. Uh, the asset is a past producer. It's currently on care and maintenance, and we've spent the last two years or so really going through a number of technical studies, looking at opportunities to de-risk the project, all of which will be wrapped up in a feasibility study, which we plan to announce in the market in the next few weeks. Uh, hi, Matt. Yes, my name is John Borshoff. Uh, I'm the MD CEO of uh, Deep Yellow. Uh, we've got uh, projects in Namibia. Uh, the flagship is the Tumas Uranium Project, which is months away from a finalising a detailed definitive feasibility study. It's all going to plan and uh, and we, we then will uh, make our decision for the next step. In parallel with that, as you all know, we're finalising a merger with MIVIMI and which is achieving one of our other big objectives in consolidation and uh, diversifying our production footprint. Well, thank you very much, gentlemen. Um, so. It, it, all projects in advanced state, probably the next taxi off the rank will be these um, African um, players so and developers. So I'm uh, looking forward to having a conversation about that later on, later. But right now, the imperative for most investors, and we've had lots of people writing to us, very, very nervous about the situation at the moment. Your companies have not been um, immune to this either. You know, stocks down across the board. Um, what are you saying to your shareholders, Brandon? Well, I think the message is quite clear. It's a most of our register are in the story because of the uranium thesis. And whilst broader equity markets have had quite a savage sell-off, and as you say, we haven't been immune to that, we've still held up pretty well. And so the message to shareholders is if they're in a position to sit tight, then that's exactly what they should be. There's The story is as good as it's ever been. And as a company, we're moving forward. So regardless of the short-term pain that's being inflicted on people's watch lists right now, it doesn't change one part of the story for us as a company or one part of the story for us as an industry. What about you, Keith? What are you saying to your shareholders? I think very similar to what Brandon's been saying. Uh, we're saying this is a short-term perturbation in the market. You know, the long-term thematics are still very, very strong. We look at electrification, we're talking about zero carbon emissions. Those are still out there. The governments are still very, very pro in terms of that kind of activity. You know, we'll get out of this. We'll be strong again. And, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to developing our project. And, John, you're not, you're not shy on an opinion or two on, on this matter. And plus, you've been through a few cycles. I mean, is this just water for ducks back for you or, or is there something more serious and sinister? 
I, I think this is more one of the lightweight uh, turnarounds, to tell you the truth. Um, the, the, everybody goes through these uh, boom and bust. They're never pleasant. Um, it's always sort of the, that bit of unknown and uncertainty people have. But, look, I think we've got a, a sort of a, a major crisis at all levels inspired by not only uh, COVID but by climate, by politics, and it all, it all sort of tends to come back on, uh, you know, energy, uranium, renewables, what, what mix and uh, and it's all I, I think you know very positive to 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 uranium. Um, we follow we track for maybe four or five years the fifty companies that were are in uranium to one degree or another, and uh, and from a low about excluding Kaz Adamprom, uh, the fifty odd companies uh, from about seven million billion dollar total market cap. Up to till four months, five months ago, up to 27 billion. Now down to what around about 20 billion. So it's it's really way up off the ground, and uh, and it's uh, you know sort of a uh, a sort of a, a downturn on a on a basic bed of upturn. And uh, and I don't th- you know I think we should be uh, comfortable that it will turn will will go back. It'll it might take a while. But I, I don't think that should uh, worry people. The turnovers in terms of shares trading on companies is remarkably low, not just ours. We, we also track the others, and um, so it hasn't been a. There are some downturns where where there are absolute volumes going, and um, and uh, but here as well, volumes are relatively light. So. Yes, people with margin calls or whatever they may have might have a bit of an effect, but most, I think, are sort of hanging on and, uh, and as uh, Brandon said, hanging in on the thesis. I mean, you, you guys in Australia are going through a sort of double whammy on, in, in that front uh, at the moment because you've kind of got tax loss season uh, for, for you guys, your end of year is uh, end, end of June, right? So do you think moments like this um, are good for the sector in terms of, you know, the, the the shaking of the tree, the kind of the violent storm shaking things up? Does it, does it help you rotate your share register into safer hands or is it um, something that cons- concerns you? I mean, Brandon, what, what, do you, what do you make of times like this? In principle, no distortion is good for any sector. So it's never comfortable to have uh, volume driven by tax loss selling. And undoubtedly there is some, but to John's point, the volumes have been low. And I think what we've seen tracking for instance, our share price, and the same can be said for uh, certainly Deep Yellow and Lotus, is that most shareholders who've been in this thesis for a couple of years are still very heavily ahead. So it's not that we've done massive volumes at higher prices and there's a wall of shareholders out there who are looking to uranium names to try and buffer gains that they've made elsewhere. There might be a little bit of opportunistic tax loss selling. There might be people who would think that they'll sell now and maybe buy back in in a week's time and rotate their stock that way. Uh, In terms of a shakeout to safer hands, uh, I think that's already been done by virtue of people who've bought into this thesis after doing a lot of work. And because we hadn't yet emerged as an investment case for generalist investors, we don't have that weaker hands, non-committed 
hands as a big feature of this sector. We're still very much driven, I believe, by people who've done a fair bit of work and been in this story for a while. We haven't yet had the taxi drivers advising people that uranium's the place to be because of their, of course, they are the people who will run first as soon as they see some red on the screen. You should, you should move to London. They're full of advice still. I think I, I got some advice about a month ago from a tax driver about investing in uranium. So uh, I think it's coming, Brandon. Um, Keith, um, you're just, I didn't realise the feasibility study was so imminent um, for, for you. And people usually see that moment as, a, as an opportunity to, to gain um, some, some upside. So um, ha, have you sort of seen a sort of changing of your, your register as a result? Um, do you expect some movement there? Or do you think, quite frankly, in this market, Whatever you announce, people are just going to shrug their shoulders and go, whatever. I think there's a few things there, Matt. I think as Brandon and John have both mentioned, there hasn't been high volumes going through on the Lotus Register at the moment. So I don't think we've had a significant change in terms of our shareholders. I think the biggest trades we've seen, the, probably the biggest sales we've seen is through these ETF funds that obviously have a mechanism in place that forces them to sell or buy based on share prices and all those types of things. That's really where we've seen our biggest volumes move through rather than the institutions or the funds or even some of the big retails, the high net worths that we've got. Um, the feasibility study is an interesting one. Obviously, high expectations from our side in terms of being able to put out what I believe is going to be a great study showing all the great work that we've done um, over the last two years to address a number of the risk issues that are fairly obvious or well-known in the industry. I do um, think that it's not the ideal environment to be putting out a study. I think that maybe people might acknowledge that it's gone out and say, oh, you guys have ticked the boxes as you said you were going to do, but we may not get the uplift that perhaps you were expecting a few months ago, but um, I'm still very, very positive about what we're going to achieve. And uh, hopefully our share price in the next month or two will show that. John, are you worried about your share price? No, uh, I'm always worried on, on behalf of our shareholders and how they perceive it. But in terms of the, the sort of the, uh, the strategic sort of positioning in terms of where I think we can sort of uh, give value to our shareholders in that context, I'm not, I'm not worried. And, um, and I think everybody should sort of look outside of their own silo and say, well, look, you know, everything's gone down. The macro of lithium is, is great. Share prices torched. The, the macro of, of gas is, uh, is you know, uh, up and, uh, and that's more immediate. So those, those effects haven't been so uh, 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 sort of impressive in terms of going down. But copper, a lot of them. Uh, uranium. So it's part of a general malaise and it's not just picking on a particular commodity because of its issues with the technology at all. And, um, and I think that, that that sort of recalibration will just come up, uh, come through uh, naturally. And the, um, it's just, uh, look, I, I just, the, just to come back, uh, most of the pain is in the, uh, in the uh, little re the retail people who I feel most for, and uh, and the, the larger sort of private wealth you know wealth guys uh, the institutions they're sort of there and uh, they're not they're not sort of pulling out they're holding their, their funds they're holding to the thematic so um, and it's just to look a little bit beyond the immediate foreground and, and and lift your eyes up a little bit and have a look at toward the horizon and see 
sometimes it's small comfort, but it is real comfort when there's embedded value in those companies that are in particular commodities and positioned. But John, can I just stick with the, the kind of the SX tax loss season component and, and how retail is behaving? I, you know, I suspect that last six months have been pretty brutal for everyone, right? And for, well, for technology companies, even longer, about nine months or so. Um, is, and, I, and you've said you've sympathy for, for the retail and obviously how they're feeling, you know, and, and, and I think that, I think that's right. But at the same time, it's about how you perceive the investment thesis and how you perceive the market in terms of um, de- deciding and defining your reaction to that, right? So it's negative if you're taking losses because you're not prepared to sit on this. Um, but if you are prepared to sit on this, it, as you say, this is just a, mo- a moment in time. Um, and it comes back to saying, well, there is an energy crisis and I think nuclear has a role to play here. So do you, do you think people are thinking this through? Are they perhaps being too short-sighted um, and being sort of, sort of you know, uh, directors of, the, of, of their own position here? So, I mean, ha- wh- wh- what would you say to people? I guess is what I'm asking some of these retail people in terms of what they're doing now, what they should be doing. So I think the downturn, um, we sort of looked at end March, you know, from February, and I don't think all that sort of sell down and selling in the, in the sort of March, April, May period, even very early June, has got much to do with tax losses at all, people think, and do that within the last two, two, three weeks just to sort of get that uh, adjustment. So, and, and I think that the... The, the areas where people look in tax losses is where something's been really torched and they can get a decent tax loss to make some, some offset to a profit they've made. And, uh, and, and yes, although, uh, you know, um, uh, the uranium stocks have come down by 60%, whatever the number is, um, and there are people up there that are sort of, um, you know, have got a, a loss well, some of those guys are ringing me up and saying, well, look, we're, we're thinking of buying. Do you think we're, we've reached a, uh, a sort of near bottom and, and to buy in and sort of average down and do these sort of things? So the, I think, um, yes, there's always a period of sort of tax, tax loss selling, but I don't think it's that much and it's hidden. It's a corrugation within the general movement uh, of, of of these stocks and that sort of sentiment that's applied now. Okay, and and okay, Brandon. So if 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 we take take what um, John John and Keith are, are saying on on that front, um, do you feel that the there's there's an understanding of um, what the thesis is because because we we see a lot of quite maniacal type commentary. Uranium bulls are probably you know. Uh, I think they're not doing themselves justice because it's all sorts of wonderful uh, claims, and they want to they want to you know sell the idea, but it's it's, it's almost too much. We're, that's certainly what's coming into us. Like, are these guys for real, right? So there's a difference between enthusiasm with with factual commentary, and then there's just just too much, right? How how do people new to investing or new to uranium investing, or perhaps some of the retail which have been you know slightly frightened off uh, in recent times because they're nervous about the market and economy. How do they look at this on a fundamentals basis? What's, why, is, why is this the space to be in? I think the reason why we're still hearing the uranium bulls quite loudly is the fundamentals are still very, very strong. 
However, I, I agree with you, Matt. It doesn't help if the same record is continually played because the world has changed and investors are nervous if they can't pinpoint, well, what are the changes to the thesis that are occurring in this current environment? If investors are concerned about recession, they want to say, well, how does that change the thesis? Because it's not credible to just say the thesis is immaculately preserved. And that's interesting from a uranium point of view, because I can argue that it's a very defensive investment if your scenario that you're concerned about is a worldwide recession or, or an economic slowdown. The reason it's defensive is because there's an enormous investment of capital in nuclear power plants around the world. Forget the demand growth that we're seeing, which Keith referred to, which is enormously positive at the moment and hasn't been dented at all in the last couple of months. But if we just ignore the demand growth, then we've got an investment around the world that constitutes more than 10% of the world's electricity. And uranium fundamentally is driven as a supply story. It's a lack of supply over the next few years. So regardless of what happens with demand, or regardless of how optimistic you are on demand, that supply is what's driving the investment thesis. And even if you take the most pessimistic outlooks or you're working on scenarios that are not even being talked about in terms of pessimism, here's where the defensiveness kicks in. Because if you're operating within an energy crisis, first of all, the most important uh, allocation of resources is towards energy. And even within the energy spectrum, the main cost of nuclear energy is its sunk capital. The cost of uranium is relatively insignificant. The U308 is typically 6 to 8% of the cost of the power. Compare that to gas, which is more like 65%. So you ask yourself as an investor, well, which energy source gets turned off first? And it definitely isn't nuclear power. And therefore, that continuing demand for uranium is absolutely rock solid, regardless of which growth scenario you want to work with. And we saw that in the depths of the pandemic in 2020. Uh, some energy forms were turned off. We had oil go to negative, and yet the impact on nuclear power demand was circa 5% in, in the, uh, across most markets. So it's, it has changed, sure. You know, the, the world is not the same as it was six months ago, but nonetheless, the thesis for uranium is still as strong. And for the reasons that John also mentioned, we've uh, we've got tremendous tail uh, winds in that are pushing the thesis along because nuclear power is becoming the preferred form of solution for the current energy crisis we've got. Except in Australia, where you've got a politician saying it's one of the most expensive forms of energy. The fact that they're even talking about it, Matt, just shows how much progress there's been. It's, <laughs> a, it's been a taboo subject in Australia for as long as I've been an adult. But you're saying so he's, he's wrong. Just, you're saying he's wrong, though. Uh, yeah, definitely. If we're talking about Chris Bowen, yeah, we are. I'll call him out. He's absolutely wrong. Either intentionally wrong because he thinks they're the sound bites that will resonate with the part of his constituency that he's trying to impress, or inadvertently wrong because he's receiving selected information that sits uh, the narrative that he's looking to accomplish. Right. Okay. Um, Keith, um, I'm going to jump to you. Right. So we, we, we've been sort of talking about how um, retail investors change their behavior in moments like this. Um, I want to understand, do CEOs, do companies change their behavior in times like this? 
my straight up answer would be no. I think um, as we've tried to talk about previously, you know, the macroeconomics or the thematics are still there. We're still in a very, very strong position from a uranium market perspective. Um, Brandon has on an absolutely critical point, I think, in that um, if you just have a look at the way things are going at the moment, what you might call the base load or so of the existing 495 reactors around the world is more than enough to be able to drive the uh, the demand that's needed from the existing uh, or future producers coming online as well. So I think that's you know really strong from that perspective. As we've mentioned before, I mean, and John has in his, all his experience has been through this on a number of occasions. This is not even the worst cycle we've been through at the moment. So. No, we're not changing our plans at all. We're um, we're still very, very confident about the market. We're very, very confident about our projects, um, and we're just going about and doing things exactly as we planned to do them six months ago, twelve months ago. So you've got no, no defensive strategy. Look, there's economists out there talking about we're heading straight on into a recession. As we've seen, that the markets are not immune to conversations like that. You guys are not immune to conversations like that. And behavior um, has demonstrated that you guys are not immune. But yet at the same time, with this energy crisis that we're walking into, and we're talking about the um, the return on investment on energy um, produced for nuclear is is you know extremely strong, a strong case. But it's got to affect you guys, this your, your company's behavior, your ability to raise capital, or, or does it? Basically, uh, look at it where where things are happening. The only CEO in uranium or any other commodity that that would be worried is if he hadn't raised sufficient money to get him into the net, you know some oxygen in the tank. And um, and and some of those may have been caught a little bit because they're sort of recently in the system. But most of them, most of the companies have have got sufficient cash to take them through a conceivable time period of time and not in a hibernation mode, but in a in a in an active, you know, sort of progressing toward wherever their wherever their respective objectives and, and ours as well. So in that in that context, uh, you we're not going to the market. The um I think the the real issue is to show that what, what is showing at the moment is the absolute fantastic nature of this uh, nuclear. All of the shenanigans that are going on with fuel supply, with gas being short, with uh, coal-fired power plants needed to come in in Germany, those beautiful beasts are just producing electricity because they've got a fuel tank with 18 months in them. And they've got another sort of at least one other replacement in, in, in them. So they don't sort of uh, um, uh, re respond to the vagaries of you know whether whether gas is not and gas what have they got a thirty day a thirty day um, uh, cycle I think coal is seven days so it has to be coming in every every sort of on ships on whatever you might want to do it and um, so when you're looking forward you're talking about a recession uh, and I'll pick up on something that Brandon said that really the problem is supply. Demand is there, and particularly with units that are going to deliver once fueled up for another for another 12, 18 months, and 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 it's really the demand that will be uh, the, the the big issue. And demand is such that these nuclear reactors 
uh, you know, can be reloaded on the back of on the back of a, a, a truck. Uh, whereas uh, to refuel and and to with gas, you need bloody ships to come in, huge blame things. And uh, so, just the nature of the product, just how would how it fits in within a an undisturbed economy, how it then fits in with its attributes in a disturbed economy, you know, one of short supply, nuclear is there, supply is needed, diversity of supply with the Iranian thing means that outside of the old old block, new uranium has to be found. And, and I don't think that's being bullish. I think that's being really realistic and taking advantage of the technology that you are part of. Uh, and, and what, what attributes is had, Sava? Yeah, and, and Matt, if I can just pick up on a point that John made about, you know, the capitalisation. So in our case as Bannerman, we're better capitalised than we've ever been in our 15-year history, and we uh, decided to de-risk that aspect of the company knowing that we had a lot of work to be done going into production. So we're not losing any sleep about that. But from an investor's point of view, you know, we've got three advanced developers on this call. And if there's going to be an impact through uh, thin capitalization of this sector, it's not going to be felt by the developers who've already done all of the work on their projects, who are now just into essentially a financing process. And all three of us are now completing advanced feasibility studies. It's going to have the impact on earlier stage companies who might either still be exploring for uranium or they might be uh, trying to build out a resource uh, or they might be still going through the expensive engineering and metallurgical processes. And we've been there. You know, we survived that period during the last bear market and it's an incredibly painful process, even though in Bannerman's case, we were lucky to raise those funds predominantly during the last boom. So for a big resource like ours, we've done 360 kilometres of drilling. Now, to try and uh, do that during a bear market is extremely value destructive. And fortunately, we did all of that during the last boom. So I think we might see a reallocation in the sector away from companies that have got big expenditures in front of them. But I think what's more likely is that uh, for the reasons that we've talked about, uh, uranium will continue to be a favoured commodity, a favoured um, asymmetrical investment proposition within the broader energy theme. And I think what certainly what I'm hoping from the industry's point of view is that these um, difficult times for raising capital are a fairly temporary aberration. Right. Okay. And Keith, I want to come back to you because it was part of the question I asked you last time. And, and um which is around funding. So if I'm an investor looking in, I'm looking at a market like this, I'm going, how on earth are these guys going to get funded? If they do raise money on the CapEx side, it's going to be value destructive for shareholders because it's going to be really dilutory because they get the, 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 the stocks where they are today, it's, it's not good news. So you've got a low CapEx project, but you are significantly advanced developer here. So in terms of timing the market, timing the raise, and if indeed the capital is going to be there for companies like yours. I mean, what, what, what would you say to uh, investors? I mean, I, I think the first comment to raise is that, I mean, I'm just talking from Lotus's perspective, there's certainly enough money in the kitty for us to go for six to nine months. There's no doubt about that. So there's certainly no reason for us to pull a trigger on a raise anytime soon. 
Um, if we do decide to pull a trigger on a raise, it would be specifically to do the execution of the project. As you did mention, um, Lotus's well, one of the things that we liked about Calicara was the fact that it is a low capital restart. So we're talking $50 million for a refurbishment, maybe another 30 or $40 million for some of the other work that we're doing there. So it's probably not as dilutive as maybe some people think this point in time. And of course, there's also the debt funding op um, opportunities to go through as well. And we know, I mean, we did a roadshow uh, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we spoke to a number of funds, a number of institutions, and there's certainly no lack of appetite in terms of providing funding. I mean, of course, the question is always going to be at what price you're going to do it, but certainly there are more than enough institutions, funds, high net worth individuals there who are more than willing or have more than enough level of comfort in terms of the uranium thematic going forward that they want to be able to invest in uranium. I don't think raising funds is going to be particularly difficult at this stage. Um, and as I said, it all depends on the price. And I think we're, we're probably in a relatively, well, I hope it's a short-term uh, downturn at the moment, but hopefully within the next six months or so, we're going to see the prices start to recover. And uh, yeah, I don't see raising money being, being an issue from that point on. Are you concerned about the cost of money, John? No, only because we're approaching it from, uh, and I agree with, uh, with what Keith's saying, that you know, we're out two, two and a half years before we want to go into the market and still fill out what we want to do. But then look at, you know, when you want to develop a project, which might come in sort of within, let's say, two years or a year and a half, if the price is right. So where we're going is through a, quite a hard school of getting bank finance. I mean, real bank syndication and, uh, and people that we've worked with before that want to be in. And, uh, and there the money is, is, is cheaper. Uh, by a significant amount, uh, but you need to go through, you know, peculiar sort of challenges and pass these sort of gates to qualify for that, which we're prepared to do because uh, we, we, we've done it. Cost of capital is always a, a sort of a, a worry. But um, when you look at, uh, you know, sensitivities of any feasibility study, when you look at the change of capital and, and all of that, it's quite a low slope. Um, and, and uh, you know, it has an impact uh, and certainly uh, it's something to watch for. But when, if you're saying that, you know, uranium price is going to get to the target of what each company wants, I think this year's, you know, won't, nothing much will happen. It's a bit of mayhem. People are hoping, utilities are hopeful that this is not happening, the real world isn't there. So, but eventually there will be the, uh, the oh hell moment. And to say, well, you know, we better we better stack up here. There's something conspiring uh, against us, uh, uh, and that's that's the time. But John, it, we we see again lots of lots of commentary come into us, and people have their concerns, and and that's fine. And what what a kind of group of that thinking is. Well, surely these high grade projects are going to get financed first because you know the margins are much better, aren't they? Well, how do you feel about let that? Let me come. Uh, let me let me answer that question. It's so bloody easy. So let's talk about these these ones that, that these North Americans constantly guffaw about. Well, the first project, the new project, is probably 10 years away. Doesn't matter what percentage, it doesn't matter what, it's just you've got to understand it. All these little juniors there that have got their, you know, their 10% intersection, two million pounds, wacky do at, at 600 metres. So 
It's, it's, the, it's the pitch. It's the story. Let's come to Africa now. And uh, Africa, have, and, and so now I'm saying North America is probably not going to have a new project seven to ten years minimum. Now Africa, oh, now let's go to South America. That's absolutely not going to have anything new coming in. The whole uh, Kazakhstan, they're just within the sort of frame and, you know, they've got their issues. Uh, Australia is, is, is doable but hard. And Africa is the place that will be new projects in the next two to six years. And I'm not saying six years delay on some, but they will just phase in those that want to come in at that time. So here is a continent that can put new product into the uh, into the uh, planet, unlike any other continent. So don't give me your bloody 10% pitch blend and how this is going to change uh, uh, development. Yes, it will, but that's down the track. And, um, and, and, and that's why I think Africa is a standout in terms of what it will be able to deliver or potentially it has got the ability to deliver in the near term, unlike any other continent in the on Earth, uh, apart from Kazakhstan, and they got their issues. But can you make money? money? Can you make money? It's all low grade, John. You know, I know you're stirring me now, and uh, and and I know that, and and I'm not going to bite. But I'm going to tell you that that uh, you only have to look at the, the, the feasibility, the studies, ours. Yes, we can. Okay. And it's not just grade is king. You know, it's it's there's a lot of other things there that that that, that happen. And uh, how do you think we got? Kayla Langer Heinrich, or Paladin, you know, 600 ppm, and it became a tier one, tier one uh, producer. And 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 a, a, you know, at the 65, 70 dollars, a good return. And and so, yeah, it's um, yes, we can make money. Okay, Brandon, can can you anything to add there in terms of economics? I mean. Look, absolutely. You know, grade is an important input into economics, but the advantage of us all being very advanced developers here is that we've got all of the inputs. So we've got robust economics that takes into account grade, but it also takes into account mining method. As John says, it's an awful lot easier doing conventional open pit than it is doing underground mining at a high grade, when it's robotic, when it's deep underground, when you're perhaps operating under a sensitive system, uh, you then have metallurgy to think about. And the reason why Namibia has the lowest grade mines in the world is because those grades have very um, achievable metallurgy. And so in our case, we've got exceptionally good metallurgy that can be heat leached, and we've demonstrated that through a pilot plant for four years. Uh, you've then got access to port. So... You can have the best grade in the world, but you can't actually make money mining a spreadsheet. You have to be able to mine the deposit. So you've got to have port access. You've got to have class seven shipping capability, as we have in Namibia and as we've had before in Malawi. You've got to be able to um, get infrastructure to site. And Namibia is tremendously endowed with infrastructure all around where John's project is and where Bannerman's a tango project is. Um, when you come to open pit mining, your key cost differential is your strip ratio. So in our case, we're very lucky because the project uh, presents at surface. So the stripping ratio is very, very low, particularly during the years when we'd be paying back finances. 
So the point I'm making is, yeah, grades very important if you're looking at dual results for a pre-discovery uh, intersection because it's the only data point that you've got except perhaps a jurisdiction. But once you've done your definitive feasibility studies, you've got so many data points that you shouldn't just look to the grade. What you should look to is the costs and the quality of the feasibility work that's been done and the quality of management and all of the surrounding circumstances that dictates whether you're going to be mining a mine or whether you're hoping to be mining a spreadsheet. Okay. And um, so, Keith, I'm going to turn to probably each of you and say, and, and you know, I know you've been very generous and talked, magnanimous and talked about Africa more broadly, but um, I'll, I'll let you kind of finish off and say, right, so, Keith, as far as you're concerned, you have a story which is based on strong fundamentals feeding into the, uh, whether it be the um, zero emissions narrative in the marketplace or the, the cost of energy argument, et cetera. So we'll, we'll take that as red, but specifically your project is a strong fundamental story. Why? I think there's three or four points that we can talk about Calicare and why it's a strong project. I think the first of all, the fact that it is a past producer is very, very important. And when we were looking at projects around the world, I think that was one of the first boxes that we wanted to tick. We want to have confidence that the product that it produces is going to be saleable and that you're going to be able to uh, produce at the required rates or at the design rates going forward. I think Brandon mentioned a couple of things which are really important as well. We've got an open cut mine with a very low strip ratio. So even though grade may normally be considered king, I think strip ratio and the ease of mining is also a very, very important variable to talk to. Uh, we look at things like the MET. Um, the MET at Calicero is good. Um, we recognize there are some things we need to do some work around, things like asset consumption and all that, but we have certainly identified those sort of issues and have been working hard on ways to try and reduce that asset consumption or, most more importantly, make better use of the asset that's been added to the circuit. We talk about logistics. There's previous logistic routes for getting the material out of Calicera and out to Namibia, which are well known and have been used, so there's no there's reduced risk associated with that. Um, I think one of the other things, and maybe when we talk about the North American stuff that John was talking about as well, I know from some of the other projects that I've been involved in in North America over the last five or six years, just the availability of labor in North America is going to be an absolutely huge issue for these projects going forward. I think the labor issue is less in, uh, um, in Africa. And I know from the conversations that I've already had with a number of players in Malawi, there is already a load or let's say a number of people there who worked previously at the asset who are looking to come back and work there. They've already submitted resumes. They're already making uh, approaches to us, asking us when we're going to restart so they can look for that future employment. So I think those are the things that we're looking for. And that's what we, you know, why we like the project so much. Thank you. And, and, and John, um, what about you? Well, ourselves is that, you know, when we chose the, the tumours, we believe this is a, a going, it's a facsimile of, of, of uh, Langer Heinrich. We, we have no, it's the same, the same all body. In fact, we've got two or three ways that we hadn't improved, hadn't had time to improve on uh, Langer, which we're applying to, to, uh, to, to tumours. So we're, we're on, a, on, a, on a bed of knowledge there that it's not something just new to us in a new area, in a new region. And so basically we're as familiar with that without basically having the infrastructure there. And I know that's important, but the real importance is the risk of, of thinking how this thing will deal. So I think that on that, we, we, uh, 
we're very confident. Um, uh, the other thing is that uh, these uh, these uh, uh, countries, and I'll say, for, I'll talk on behalf of Malawi as well, uh, which I feel I can, and and Namibia, of course, is that people believe that these these countries will allow uranium to be delivered, and on on in in regions where there's been no no prior history of uranium mining, and where people are starting off fresh blank educating everybody that walks in governments and all that becomes a harder task so one of the reasons why and i come back to africa niger is there malawi is there um, uh, namibia for sure it's had, had a long history so um they're they're the and and that then means that that uh that namibia uh, or africa will be investable because why well, okay so what do you want do you want a project in the next two three years, when you're when you need need product, or wait somewhere for eight years where you know you're just going to be rationing up your plant because of lack of fuel, it's it's it it, it all starts working to the favour of yes countries within Africa, but Africa generally uh, will become uh, more 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 important and relevant in this time where the supply diversity is becoming an absolute essential and uh, an imperative, in fact. Um, so I think it's a, it's in a good space. I think yes, the market is down, but there's no the the uh, building and m working to that future where if you, if you really look at it and and, and do you even the own thing and say right, you know, uranium price has to reach certain certain levels by you know mid late next year, and uh, because why is that? Because you've got to look at those people are wanting product. Uh, if they do sign up, then for delivery two years later, and imagine what the supply demand thing is going to be then. And um, so, there's good things happening, and uh, and a lot of these forerunners, of, you know, mini mini catalysts like the mothballing, which didn't have the effect, even the the uh, uh, the um, uh, the Cameco one, um, the the spot, which which showed people what can happen with a uh, mucking around on the on the periphery of the of the supply and the in a spot market, but when they stop, it goes down. Imagine what will happen when the utilities have, they have to come in. And that's, that's the bull in me talk. Well, I, no, I pre appreciate that. And, and like I say, I think, I think that the argument for the, on the thesis is, is irrefutable. There's a lot going on, but it, it, it does unfortunately drag on a bit, um, despite the story improving, improving on a, on a daily basis. So I think that's possibly why there's a sort of nervousness in the marketplace from retail investors for, for sure. So, um, I mean, Brandon, in, in that context, what the guys have, guys have said, so tell me, you know, why is your story a fundamentals based story? I think the, the feedback that we get from institutional investors who do the work is, I think there's probably three main attractions for Bannerman. The first one is just the scale and the leverage that that brings. So uh, a Tango 8 will deliver on average 3.5 million pounds per annum, which is a big mine that can uh, serve a seven to eight conventional size gigawatt scale reactors. So we've got a lot of relevance there. Now that's within a resource just at a tango of more than 200 million pounds. And we've got satellite, significant satellite deposits in addition to that. Uh, so that's the scale. Now the leverage, just to throw a number at you, based on our PFS, a 10% increase in our uh, selling price assumption 
So $65 is what we used. Add 10% to that, and it generates a 47% increase in our post-tax NPV. So in a rising uranium price environment, when, as John says, prices absolutely need to re-rate, investors are very intrigued and attracted by that leverage. We can layer into that the capacity to expand our production. We previously conducted a definitive feasibility study based on a 7.2 million pounds per annum production rate from the same ore body. It just involves going deeper, faster. And that's something that we can look at as we're in production, as we uh, are profitable, as we pay back our finances, we can then expand layering in a, an additional layer of leverage here to uh, optimistic uranium price scenarios. Um, the, the next thing that really resonates is we've got a lot of strategic upside with the company. We're in Namibia, we're advanced, we have our environmental approvals, and uh, for reasons that are now plain to see in the current geopolitical Malay, Namibia and uranium and nuclear power are enormously strategic commodities, and that makes us a strategic investment. And, and look, I think the final thing is we're on a, um, a path to development here. We're in the final throes of completing a definitive feasibility study with a Tango 8. We're cashed up. We've got the money necessary not only to complete that DFS, but to move all the way through equity funding, the front-end engineering and design, and even into detailed design if the market isn't ready for us yet or if we don't like the price that we're seeing. And with that advanced pathway to development, with the um, all of the environmental approvals to build the mine in place, uh, we're moving towards delivering producible pounds into the sweet spot in this marketplace. And as we've all talked about on this call, this is a supply-driven story. And if you can't deliver supply, you're not part of the story. And that's what we can do. Brilliant. Thank, like, thank you very much. And, and gentlemen, thank you all very much for your time today. It's, it's sort of comforting hearing it from you. So um, for those... Hello. Yes? Hello. Hello. Go for it. Why his bloody company was good. What about these other two guys? It, in the sense that, sorry? How do you reckon your company is, uh, is, is how it's situated and what it is? And then ask me why, why, why Deep Yellow is so fantastically situated. Go. I thought I, th I thought I did, and I, I thought I thought you answered. But you, go, go for it if you if you want, if you've more to say, John. Delighted to hear oh, you. Right. So basically, with Deep Yellow, we are doing things very differently than than most other companies, and not to deride what they're doing. What we're what we're saying is that we are developing projects uh, like Tumas, which we know it can get off the ground. We've got the team, the teams, the credibility, both you know where we deliver to people that know, and, and there's very few of those teams. But more than that, what I'm trying to do is develop a, a company with a multi-mine capability, which is, I think, what the industry really needs. With diversity in other countries, and we've got the management capable of doing that, and once you see the Rios of this world have disappeared, the, the post-Fukushima makeup of how uranium companies and where each will sit and what needs to be provided, and with our success now with Vimy, uh, it puts us in a completely different category on a completely different scale, two projects ready to go within, say, starting in two years' time, and from there we'll build on that with other acquisitions. Over.
Brilliant. John, no, so apologies, John. I, th I thought I'd, I thought I'd asked you. Um, my fault. Um, well, look, I'll say thank you very much to all of you um, now for your, your time, effort, your insight, your, your vast knowledge and experience. Um, for those listening or watching this from home, um, if you're not invested in the uranium space, it's something that you want to think about in a high leverage type return, especially at today's levels, um, worth looking at. And if you're looking for companies with strong fundamentals, with teams who've built mines before, you can't go wrong um, uh, looking at these three today. So Brandon Monroe of Bannerman Energy, Keith Bowes of um, Lotus Resources, and certainly not last but not least, um, Mr. John Borshoff, um, uh, of deep yellow. So uh, thank you very much for your time, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Thank you very much. Very enjoyable.